Amen. You may be seated. You notice in the psalm that we just sang, the psalmist kind of goes back and forth. In the, he's, he's disrespected, he's in trouble, he's surrounded. But he finds great refuge in God's Word. And no matter what the pressure is that the world puts on him to lose heart, to be discouraged, to, and so forth, or even to turn away from God, he constantly goes back to the Word of God, and the Word of God is sure, the Word of God is certain, the Word of God gives him peace and comfort and security because of God. Remember, behind the Word, the reason the Word is unfailing is because the God who gave us the Word is unfailing. And that's where David finds his refuge. He also, as that psalm unfolds or those verses unfold, you get the sense, and, and this is really an important thing, this is what it means to live by faith and not by sight. The world presses us to abandon God's word. The world presses, the world tells us that if you follow God's word, you're a hater. But I will not forget your law. That's what it means to live by faith and not by sight. But I will not forget your law. Well, before I get sidetracked into a completely different sermon than what I had planned, Let's turn in our Bibles to our passage, which is uh, the final section of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 21. Final instructions to a young minister. Final instructions to a young minister. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 21. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ." which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And here is the end of First Timothy. Notice that simple benediction at the end. Grace be with you. 
That was Paul ending this letter. Now, a few years later, he would write another letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, which is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And he writes it from prison, his second imprisonment in Rome, we believe. He writes it from prison, and he knows that the end of his life is drawing near. We read those two letters together often, and I urge you to Go back, don't just stop reading Timothy because we're at the end of 1 Timothy, but take time, I would hope, that you would read 2 Timothy as well. and You'll see, you'll see the same instruction, but a, a higher sense of urgency because Paul knows that his time is very limited. There's a bittersweet aspect to 2 Timothy as we realize it is the final communication we have from the Apostle Paul. But at the end of 1 Timothy, we have a sequence of instructions for Timothy, who is a pastor, who is a young servant, a young associate of Paul. And Paul is taking this opportunity to give him the final exhortations, the final instructions. And so we're going to work our way through this passage. It's it's very considerate of the Apostle Paul to to actually let this passage uh, unfold in three distinct sections, which fits our pattern of three points in a sermon. I I thought that was very thoughtful of him to do that. Uh, The first section, verses 11 through 16, persevering in a God-honoring ministry. The second section, verses 17 through 19, an antidote to loving money. Remember what he said previously, the love of money is the root of all evil. Warn those who are rich in this present age. But this is the antidote. This is the opposite of of instruction uh, instead of just warning, 17 through 19. And then finally, one final exhortation to be faithful to his calling and faithful to the word of God, verses 20 and 21. Persevering in a God-honoring ministry. Paul begins this section by saying, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Well, what's he referring to? He's obviously referring to something that he has written about prior to this. And he's contrasting this. He's, he's warned about people who uh, will uh, uh, bring around themselves false teachers who will uh, who will be influenced by false teaching and false teaching coming into the church. Uh, if you go back to the previous section prior to this, you see Paul's warnings against certain things, particularly at the, toward the end of that previous passage. And he warns against false teachers. He warns against conceit. He warns against pointless, destructive controversies that these teachers, false teachers, bring into the church. And he says that they they are doing it as a means of gain. And then he warns also against the love of money. The love of money, which is a form of idolatry, form of self-worship, idolatry. Money itself is simply a means of exchange, but money has significance to us, particularly as our old nature thinks that money is a source of security and wealth is a source of power and influence and comfort and and I can shield myself against all the all the downturns and all the problems of life if only I have enough money but I never have enough so Paul has listed all those things 
And he begins this section by telling Timothy, flee from all of that. Run as fast as you can from that way of thinking. Run as fast as you can from the false teachers, the controversies they raise, uh, the, the, the destruction that they cause, conceitedness and love of money. You flee from these things, but instead pursue. And you need to catch the, the contrast here. Flee from that, run away from that, but pursue this. Pursue this. It's not just enough to cleanse your house from the bad stuff of the previous life. You need to fill your house with the good stuff of a new life. What are you pursuing, Timothy? Pursue this. Righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and what? And his righteousness. That was Jesus instructing his disciples. Don't be like the the Gentiles who are running after wealth and running after power and, and so forth, but seek first the kingdom of God. Don't be worried about what you're going to eat, and don't be worried about what, you're, what uh, shelter you have or clothing you need. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Pursue righteousness. Godliness. All these things are not completely different, obviously, but pursue godliness. Your nature, Timothy, and all of us sitting here today, being here today worshiping God, as you are a Christian, your nature is being changed. You are being changed. Slowly but surely, you are being recreated in the image of him who made you first. You are being recreated in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, according to the Apostle Paul. And that is part of the pursuit of godliness. We remember that that beautiful passage that all things work together for the good of those who are chosen, the ones who are called according to his purpose. But in as you know, and I've said this many times before, in the context, the good that all things are working for, the good is that you are being conformed to the image of Christ. That is godliness. In our character, we begin more and more to look like God, to look like Christ. Not that God has a physical shape or anything like that, but in our character, we become godly. Pursue faith. Well, we just talked about living by faith and not by sight. And I think that's what Paul has in mind here. We pursue the faith, that is the body of doctrine that the the Bible teaches us, but we live by faith as well. In spite of all that we see around us that tells us that the world is winning, that Satan is winning, that that evil is triumphing, in in spite of all the pressure that we experience to conform to this world, We cannot be conformed to this world. We must be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and that means living by faith, pursuing faith. God has made promises. He has established his righteousness in his word. He has made promises in his word. They will not fail. The present age may be dark. It may be filled with persecution. It may be filled with evil. But God's word will not fail. The grass withers, the flower fades, 
but the word of the Lord endures forever. That is the key verse of living by faith. Pursue love. Love is the fulfillment of God's law. Love is the fulfillment of what we are called for. Love is the sign to the world that we are God's people. They will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. Pursue love. Pursue steadfastness. Don't be shaken. Don't be quick to to drop your principles. Don't be quick to compromise. You can be seduced. Yes, people will say you should be a peacemaker, but peace at the expense of faithfulness is not real peace, and it's not steadfastness. In the midst of all this, pursue gentleness. Jesus came to sinners. He came to minister to sinners. He did not come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous to repentance. And he cared for those who were weak and struggling. The prophet Isaiah described the Messiah's ministry. He is so gentle that he will not quench the smoking, smoldering little flax. That most delicate thing. Indeed, by his spirit, he knows precisely how to call and work with each one of us individually. And Timothy, you must pursue that same gentleness and that same wisdom in dealing with the people that God has given to your care. I almost feel like I'm giving you a charge here. (laughs) Uh, Take it as you will. Pursue these things. Pursue this. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Timothy, unless you can build a megachurch, you're just really not pulling your weight. I read this morning a statement from someone who actually is the pastor of a megachurch. He says this, and he's correct. It's not the size of the church, but the faithfulness of the ministry that counts. He said, God will take care of the size. But we are called to faithfulness. Paul goes on in this section. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. This is, in a sense, Paul is stepping it up a a bit. He's he's, he's, he's taking that jar of uh, Emerald Lagasse's bam and bam. We're going to step it up a bit. I charge you in the presence of God. I charge you in the presence of Jesus Christ. And who did, what did Jesus do? I charge you in the presence of God to keep your good confession, to maintain faith with what you confessed earlier in your life. Now, he points to Jesus here as an example Christ himself confessed the truth before Pontius Pilate. Christ himself confessed, indeed, that he was the one. He confessed the truth. He spoke truth to power in the presence of Pontius Pilate, and 
Timothy, you must follow the example of our Savior. When you are called upon to confess what you believe, when you are called upon to speak for Jesus Christ publicly, you must be consistent with what you have confessed to be true. We confess certain things to be true, but do we live in accordance with our confession? That is the challenge. Notice how Paul elaborates on his description of Jesus Christ. He gets caught up almost in a, in a, 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 a short phrase uh, session here where he, he, he mentions Jesus Christ, and then he goes off and describes in these uh, phrases the glory of Christ. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Christ is coming back at the proper time. He will appear at the time at the proper time, just like in his first coming, when the time was right, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So too, at the second coming of Christ, when it is the right time, at the proper time, he will appear. You are to keep the commandment until he appears. Who is he? He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. In the presence of God, and he describes God, in the presence of Jesus Christ, and Christ being the, the Son of God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. He has immortality. He is sovereign over all things. Indeed, remember that Jesus himself proclaimed his sovereignty over all things when he said, I have been given authority over all things in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, into all the world and preach. Do you understand the sovereignty of God? is not a deterrent to missions and evangelism. It is actually the foundation of it. All authority has been granted to the Son. He is sovereign Lord. Go <laughs> into the world. His sovereignty is the foundation. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul says here, keep the commandment. And there's a question that arises in interpreting this passage. What exactly is Paul referring to when he talks about the commandment? Notice it's, it's a singular. It's not a plural. We would understand it very quickly if he said, keep the commandments. Uh, clearly, that would be a reference to the Ten Commandments, and that certainly would not be wrong. But it's not exactly, it doesn't exactly fit here. Keep the commandments or keep the commandment. Matthew Henry, the old Puritan commentator on the Bible, says this, the commandment in this case is the whole work of his ministry. 
all the trust that has been reposed in him, all the service expected from him. Let me read that again. The commandment is the whole work of his ministry, all the trust reposed in him, and all the service expected from him. Now, in practical terms, what does that mean? You know, when we're ordained into an office, deacons, elders, ministers, when we're ordained into office, we take vows. We promise to do certain things and not do certain things. We promise to be faithful. We promise to seek the peace, purity, and unity of the church. We promise these certain, uh, certain things. We state certain things that we believe to be true. And I would say a, a good way to understand in our modern situation, our contemporary situation, what Paul means when he says, keep the commandment, what he's selling us, ministers and elders and deacons, keep the vows you made. Keep the vows you made when you were ordained to office. Keep those promises. How long do I have to do this? Well, until he appears. Until he appears. Do you love his appearing? It's a way of describing Christians. We are those who love and we long for the appearing of Jesus Christ. I'm sometimes concerned in churches that we don't talk in. There are some churches that are always talking about Bible prophecy. Always, I mean, the second coming, the rapture, the, you know, tribulation, everything is a big theme. By the way, come back tonight. We're going to read First and Second Thessalonians. It's a big theme there. I mean, there's a place for it. But I'm sometimes concerned that we don't talk about the coming of Christ enough. It's almost like, we, well, we know it's controversial, and we're, we don't want to bring controversy in, so we're going to kind of shy away from that. But we are to be people who love his appearing, who long for his appearing, and who have vowed to be faithful till his appearing. Now, faithfulness doesn't end with his appearing, but there's a huge change with his appearing until his appearing. Next section. So much for the charge to Timothy. But we're coming back. There's one more thing for Timothy to think about. But in the meantime, section 17 through 19, verses 17 through 19, is really the antidote to loving money. Remember, in the previous section, he is warned against those who have uh, warned those who are rich in this present age not to not to worship themselves. Not to the love of money, he says, can be the root of all kinds of evil. And he says, even some have have fallen into this trap so deeply that they have wandered from the faith. They have left the faith. Here's the antidote for that love of money, where Paul, Paul says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Oh, can having a lot of earthly possessions, can having wealth and power and influence and all that wealth can buy, can that make you haughty? Can that make you proud, arrogant, lording it over others? Yes, that's one of the temptations that can come with it. Do not be haughty. Do not think that because you have certain 
well, a certain amount of wealth that you are owed a certain level of respect. We are not respectable people. Well, you need to understand the context. In the world's sight, we're not. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. I love listening uh, sometimes to the radio and, and these investment companies and, and uh, companies that sell gold and, and so forth. They're coming. They always come in and they warn you, unsettled times are coming. Buy gold. No, unsettled times are coming. Trust Jesus. Put your faith in God and be good stewards of what he has given to us. Be good stewards of what he has given to us. I'm sure there were a lot of people in the 1920s who thought their investments and their wealth would shield them from what was going on in Europe or what, you know, things that were happening all around the world. Our wealth and our prosperity will shield us. And then the crash came. You do not know what will happen tomorrow. The Old Testament prophet warned the people of Israel. He said, you, you earn your money, you put it into your purse, and it disappears. You remember the old cartoons when someone would open their purse and a couple of moths would fly out? Why? Well, they weren't being good stewards of what God had given them. They were not putting the kingdom first. They were not building the temple like he had instructed them to do. God of providence is sovereign over our wealth. He can bless and he can take away. He blessed Job and he took it away from Job. And Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. What are you to do? If you have been blessed, to the level you have been blessed, they are not to put their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is the source of our happiness here, not our wealth. That's simply a means to an end. But it is God who gives us and provides us with everything to enjoy. What they, are they to do? They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. God has given us wealth for a purpose, not to lavish it on ourselves, but to do good, to be ready to share, to be rich in good works. That is stewardship. And, and if I can just say this and tweak it a bit, say this is a stewardship that goes beyond the base of tithing. We always start, well, let's talk about let's talk about tithing. No, let's talk about stewardship. You must be tithing. Notice that this this goes way beyond that. This goes to an attitude of the heart. This goes to our whole relationship with the love of money or the love of God. You can't have both. You cannot worship both. You cannot serve God and mammon. You will love one and hate the other, or hate one and love the other, but you can't do both. You will love one or the other, and we must love God. And so in loving God, we will be good stewards of that which he has given to us. And being good stewards, we realize it's there for us to do good, 
It's there for us to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share, and thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Notice in the previous section, he's talked about those who are subverted by this love of money and wander from the faith and lose. They, 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 they walk away from what they have professed. The pull of the world is too great for them. And they walk away from their faith that they professed. We can get into the issue of, did they really lose their salvation? No, I think what God did was ultimately expose the falseness of their profession. Providentially, he, he did that, and he does do that. Here, Paul says, you are storing up for yourself treasure for the future, a good foundation for the future, so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. This is actually part of your discipleship. This is actually living by faith. This is actually part of that process of being conformed to the image of Christ, of, of godliness and pursuing righteousness. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. What can happen to those treasures on earth? Thieves break in, rust and moth destroy it. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. No one can touch those. Thieves cannot break in. They do not deteriorate. That's what Jesus said. Final warning and exhortation to Timothy, verses 20 and 21. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. One more exhortation to faithfulness. The world is full of conflicting babble, the conflicting babble of false teaching. And let me, rather than naming names, I, well, I could name names, but let me, let me give you two themes that are consistent themes of false teachers. And they be, we find them in the first century church, and we find them today, and they have been consistently running around throughout the history of the church. And there are variations on these themes, but at heart there are these two great themes— what, what did Paul have in mind when he warns against this babbling and these contradictions of things that are falsely called knowledge? Well, the Greek philosophers had all kinds of knowledge. The Gnostics had a secret knowledge that they gained from their supposed insights into the nature of the gods and the, the different levels of beings and so forth that they constructed in their minds and from legends and from old fables. There are two great attacks against biblical truth in the first century. The first is legalism, with its kiss and cousin, antinomianism. If you've been in Sunday school, you get that. If you haven't been in Sunday school, you need to finish up this book that they're studying in the adult class. Antinomianism and 
legalism or what does he call it? Uh, dissimilar twins from the same womb, I think he calls it. But legalism. What is it that legalism does? Legalism in its in all of its manifestations, and there are many different manifestations, but legalism in all of its manifestations takes my focus off the righteousness of Christ, which is at the heart of the gospel, and tells me to look to myself, my performance, my obedience, my self-righteousness. That's what legalism does, and it comes in a multitude of different ways. Watch out, Timothy. Watch out, Orthodox Presbyterians. Anything that tries to replace Christ and Christ alone as the source of a perfect righteousness and the only righteousness that is acceptable to God is legalism, and it is deadly. And those who embrace it will wander from the faith. The second great error that was creeping into the church in the first century were these Gnostic notions about Jesus Christ, denying that Christ was the Son who came in the flesh. The Apostle John writes about these things in 1 John and 2 John, 3 John. He writes about the, the Antichrists who are coming, and he, it's very interesting. He talks about Antichrists who are already here and the Antichrist who is coming, but they, the, the mark of those Antichrist, whether it's the capital A or the minions running around, the hallmark is that they deny that Christ has come in the flesh. They deny the truth of Jesus Christ. They deny his person and they deny his work. They have false views of who he is and what he has come to do. Look for, isn't it interesting that the attack of both these false teachings, whether it's legalism or uh, errors concerning the nature of Christ, they both focus ultimately on Christ. Attacking him as our sufficiency, the sufficient source of righteousness before God, attacking him as the Son of God come in the flesh, which tells you how important, of course, he is, doesn't it? Any teaching that comes to you and says, I have received some great understanding, some new knowledge, quote unquote, some new knowledge about Jesus, all the knowledge we need about Jesus Christ is in the pages of this book. If it comes from outside, flee, run away. Guard the good deposit. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the truth that has been given to you, Timothy. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Those are the instructions. We have God's word. Do not swerve from it. Long ago, in many 
At many times and in many ways, the writer of Hebrews says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God had spoken. He spoke through the prophets, he spoke through apostles, he speaks through his Son. He speaks to us in his word. He opens our eyes and our hearts to understand and believe his word by his Spirit. His word is sufficient. Reject all others. That's how you guard the good deposit. Brothers and sisters, my time as pulpit supply is ending today. It has been one of the great privileges of my life to be able to minister to you from this pulpit. I'm kind of looking forward to being just a regular worshiper for a while. I have a feeling I might be back occasionally, but who knows? God knows. I turn this pulpit, which is simply a symbol of the place from which we proclaim God's word, to your next pastor, Darrell Kretschmer, with great hope and great joy and confidence that God will continue to bless this church through his ministry. As he is faithful to God's word, as he follows these exhortations and instructions that are at the end of 1 Timothy, God will bless, even as he has blessed this congregation. So I leave you with these words, and the words that Paul ends this passage with, grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your word. We rejoice in Jesus Christ, whom you have appointed your Son, to be our Savior. We rejoice in the fellowship of the saints as we gather together for worship and to be together and to strengthen one another and enjoy one another's company as those who have been bought and purchased by the blood of the Lamb, those who are indwelt by the Spirit, those who long for His appearing. We rejoice. We give thanks to you, Lord for your many bountiful blessings. And we pray that you would continue to bless this congregation, bless each family, bless each person who is here. Bless us with your presence, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.